The Magic Book Club Podcast. Hello, you're listening to the Magic Book Club Podcast. My name's Tom Price, and this week I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome writing royalty, Linda Laplante. It's a cliche and it's probably been said before, but you have sold oodles and oodles and oodles of books, and they're brilliant, and you created Jane Tennyson. So on behalf of the great British public, thank you for that. My pleasure. Get that done. Thank you very much indeed. Um, your new book, uh, The Dirty Dozen, is out now. Um, thank you very much for joining us here at Magic Towers. Now, you, when you arrived in this building, there, the Magic Towers has some significance to you, does it not? Yes, it's unbelievable significance because, um, you know, I had this huge success with a series called Widows. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, people seem to think that if you have one great success, they will come double-fold after it. Everybody will want to. It doesn't work that way. What happens is every time you go for a meeting, you have somebody say, well, we'd rather like a, a kind of a group of women to um, rob a bank. And you go, no, I've just done that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were all similar things. Every time I went for a meeting, the same so I I was out of work after that huge success. How long were you out of work for then? After that? I would that was say enormous, eighteen months. Uh-huh. because everyone was just saying, just regurgitate that, please. Do yes, the same again. Regurg- and also, uh, you know, things that were taking so long to be commissioned, yeah. and they were very hesitant about me wanting to go into a new field or do something different. Mm. And you've got to understand, I had not actually written crime. I'd written about these women from the East End and a lot of police procedure, but I had met a few terrific police officers. So this time when I came to Granada TV, I thought, lesson, keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Find out what they want. Uh Not go in and try and sell them something that you've got. Oh. So I was very well behaved. And when I went in, you know, and I, they said, I said eventually, so what, what are you looking for? What do you really want? Well, we're, we're really interested in bringing a new female police officer. Um, and it, it's a very interesting that, that she would be Leading, I said, do you know, it's absolutely extraordinary. (laughs) I've been researching this. (laughs) And they said, oh, that's fantastic. Yes, I've been working with a woman um, (laughs) who is very high-ranking. Plain clothes. Oh, she said, that's exactly what we want. And then she said, what's it called? And, you know, I said, prime suspect. Did you just just pluck that out of your head? Out of my head. And I didn't have a plot. I didn't have a character. I didn't have anything. I just lied. <laughs> so I went back um, and began calling everybody I'd met from the Met and said, help. And that's when I met the female DCI who became the prototype for Prime Suspect. And what was amazing, I worked so hard on a script to make it completely authentic. Mm. Oh, we don't like it. No, we don't like I mean, she touches the body and doesn't react. I said, well, why do you want her to react when she sees the cadaver? Well, you know, wouldn't she cry? And I go, she's a police officer. 
So it became exceedingly difficult because they truthfully didn't like the character, mm. didn't like the script, and they were going to actually drop it. Right. And then something happened. Somebody somewhere in this building read it and said, wait a minute, have you actually read this? So it then began to galvanize. Yeah. Who do you want as the police officer? Now we were up and rolling. Mm -hmm. And I said, an actress called Helen Mirren. Oh, well, hmm. <laughs> we don't know. What TV has she done? And I said, well, she's actually a superb stage actress. I don't think she's done very much television. Oh, yes, well, you see, we haven't been to the theatre. Um, what else do you think she's done? I said, why don't you just listen to me? She's a superb actress. She's the right age. Anyway, long story short, Helen Mirren is off of the part. So now they're casting. And um, I'm at home. And this is why as soon as I walked in this building, I remembered this moment. And I'm at home and I go, Hi, Linda. Listen, we think we've cast George Marlowe, who was the killer. Okay. And I said, oh, have you? They said, yes, we've got this fantastic actor. I said, really? Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I said, what's his name? And I'm not going to say it because he is quite well known. Okay. So I had a spotlight, which is, you know, actor's Bible, really. All the photographs are in there, agents. Yeah. So, so I you thumb, thumb through, through it. <laughs> yeah, thumb through it, find him. And actors are quite notorious about, you know, 5'10". Mm -hmm. Now, a 5'10 is usually an actor about 5'8 and a half. <laughs> it's like having a stage age. Yeah, 5'6", ooh, very short. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So I knew this actor was very short. So I said, you cannot cast him until I come in. Oh, well, he, I said, keep him there yeah. and let me come in. But isn't that quite unusual for you to retain that much power over casting as a writer yeah. at this stage? very unusual. That's good, isn't but it? But because I'd worked with a superb producer mm. on Widows, I kind of truthfully expected it. I mean, we cast Widows together yeah. with the director. And um, anyway get a taxi and I'm running in and they're there kind of looking at their watches and I'm in the corridor. I think it was a third floor Granada TV. In office. this building that we're in, in right now? In this very building. Gosh, so we're on the second floor here so that's one up from us so now. Bang in and, you know, they're very uptight because I've kept them waiting and this actor waiting mm -hmm. and I said, okay, this is what you play out. If he can carry me over his right arm the length of this corridor, then you offer him the part. And he went, what? What? <laughs> Quite narrow corridors as well. <laughs> we said, what do you mean? I said, that is how he moves the bodies. In the script, it describes him as at least six foot two. Mm. It also describes that he works out in a gym and is a weightlifter. 
This detail's vital, though. This detail's what makes these things move. Had they not read that, then? <laughs> they go, um, well, I said, so, you know. Yeah. See if he can carry me over his left arm and down this corridor. And there was a lot of sort of, <clears throat> well, you know, well, listen, I, I, I don't think it's necessary to go on, really. <laughs> you know, and I went into another office and they apologised to this actor and said, thank you very much for coming in. And that was it, really. So there you go. So, so, and that was the big, so he didn't get it. No. He didn't get the part. All right, we won't mention his name. You can, no. you can mouth it to me, though. And then John Bow. Got the part, oh, who good. was over six foot. And did you make children. him carry you down the corridor? No, oh. because um, he could very easily do it. Right, okay, okay. But it was a very strange area too because um, you would not stop somebody quite smartly dressed mm. carrying a heavy-duty plastic dry cleaning bag over his arm. No. And that's how he moved and yeah, of course. Mm. Just that sort of natural deference of someone being well-dressed. Do you think that's changed? Do you think that, that, that people can disguise themselves by making themselves look uh, respectable? People can still do that now, can't they? Or do you think people question more? Yeah, well, they do. But, I mean, there is a kind of what I call it almost like a class system. You know, every killer's got to be, I don't know, a tormented soul living in dreadful place or whatever. They're not. Mm. You know, and the more sophisticated they are and more charming they're the lethal ones yes yeah. you know so many murders are domestic violence eruption of rage uh drugs related mm. to actually study serial killers they are a different breed mm. and when you get somebody and a manipulative person who also has that sickness. Very, very interesting. I was watching a series that was on, it's on at the moment, where it's based on a real serial killer. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago. And the actor, when cross-questioned or interviewed and interrogated, was doing too much. Too much movement of his eyes, movement. You mm. know, if you have a serious psychopathic killer... They're frozen. Their ability to also be connected to a very social side to them. Yes. Um, it's, I, this is what I always say to actors, to encourage actors, watch real footage. If you want a performance. And with John Bow, who played in Prime Suspect, a serial killer, I said to him, your job is to make every single person like you and for you to appear absolutely the most likable, affable man. Mm. You love your mother. You love... There's only one line you have to show the monster. Just mm. one line. And he's, he did that. Yeah. You had no notion that he was a killer. But it felt like Prime Suspect, I don't know if it, if it invented that idea, but it certainly feels like that's the modern... And that's been aped a lot since then, that moment in, in TV shows especially, and books as well, where someone turns around and you suddenly revealed. And that was a, that was a real motif of Simon's Prime Suspect, that moment. I think more than, you know, people ripping off the, <laughs> the way I wrote the killer, is it... You know, the female protagonist, the, the female boss. Yeah. 
you know, if you see so many detective shows and they miss very important areas, they miss the fact if you get to that high rank, you are a certain age. Mm. You know, we have people saying, D- Detective Chief Inspector, and they look about 12. So how, ex- how old should you be if you're a Detective Chief Inspector? You're in your 30s, uh-huh. mid-30s, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. late-30s. Your attention to detail with procedural stuff, I mean, it's there in the dirty dozen. It's fa- I love procedural things. I, I really mm. enjoy reading them. Um, do you have to work hard to keep that up to date? Because the procedures must change with technology. Um, so do you have to really work at that? Well, that when I'm doing um, a present-day crime, then it's it's... To keep abreast of all the new forensic is quite tough going. What do you do? Do you meet people? Or? Yeah. 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 And um, go to the laboratories. Uh-huh. Um, I find it imperative to meet the real McCoy. Yes. Um, and I loathe when I read a novel. And for example, the toxicology report is coming in any minute. You go, no. No, toxicology report will take you two to three to four weeks. Yeah. In America, it can take you three to four, five, six weeks, even months, because it's a very detailed scientific. It's got to go to a laboratory, has to be tested. There's usually a queue. Mm. And it's that attention to detail. So you've got to, as a modern-day writer, fill in, because you've got mobile phone, you can get from A to Z to D very quickly. Yeah. You know, two... Co- you have the um, CCTV footage. Yeah. And that's a gift, got, isn't it? Uh, the, somebody with a mobile phone, they're saying, oh, well, he was having breakfast at McDonald's at 8pm <laughs> yeah. when the murder happened. So he couldn't really have done it at 7.15. Hmm. Could he have driven there? They've got... Per- so you have to work as a modern-day crime writer at a speed. And for me, the imperative part of that is the plot. Get a good plot going. Yeah, yeah. And over and over again, I find with a lot of crime books, they're going very well midway. Three quarters away, it's as if the writers have thought, ooh, ooh, I've got to end this, ooh. <laughs> and they suddenly throw in the most lunatic suspect or, you know, somebody that couldn't possibly have done it. So by writing things like Dirty Dozen, which is set in the 80s, I have an even harder lesson. There are no mobile phones. There are no DNA tests. There are no CTV footage. It made me long for those days, reading Jane Tennyson, uh, who's just joined the flying squad in this book, and she's out and about doing stuff, and there's one, I think it's maybe her second day, where the boss wants to get hold of her, and he hasn't managed it. Murphy, he wants to get hold of her. Yes, Murphy. And he's failed to get hold of her because she hasn't checked in with the phone. And I'm like, oh, most people would dream of that now, to Mm. not have someone on them. Because, of course, nowadays, there'd be a WhatsApp within 30 seconds saying, get here now. Absolutely. And they were dependent on the radio contact. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's hard to believe, dependent on the radio contract and also A to Z, and also for the Sweeney, for themselves, to have an amazing memory of um, the roads. Yeah. You know, take a shortcut here. No, that's a back alley, back alley, back yeah. alley, get back. Well, they use so, people who've worked in those bits, don't they? Yes. You, you know that, Grand. You take us up to Tottenham yeah. or and whatever. And so driving, you have somebody that specialised in driving with a souped-up car. Yes. But also arming, you know. They had a cupboard yeah. in the headquarters, right? Labrook Grove, go, go, go. One going down, one going down, shooters. And they'd tool up, yeah. Yeah. climb into the souped-up car, and they were off. But now 
that adrenaline buzz they got, now they couldn't tool up like that. You've got to sign the documents, you've got to call out the armed squad, you've got to call out... There wasn't even a bulletproof vest amongst them. They fed on adrenaline. They were very, very tough guys without, you know, with no question. They loved it. They were also angry men too. You get on the wrong side of these guys, often they were, you know, not, there were no question of going to a gym, (laughs) you know, work out. Oh, no, I don't. Well, they do use the gym early on in the flying in the... uh, A little bit, a little bit. But it doesn't, it's not quite used for... But in, in, in reality... You know, nowadays, it was a different world. Yeah. A lot of them had come from the army. A lot of them had come from the navy. A lot of them fought as well. So in the 70s and 80s, they'd fought in big wars. Yeah. And so they were tough guys. And um, the adrenaline they got from these call-outs for a young woman is shocking. You know, she's hanging on for dear... She's also got Cuban heels on. (laughs) And she's hanging on for dear life to the car as they're going into a big arm robbery and for her to be faced with a shooter is so terrifying no matter what her training has been up to this point she has never come across a guy with a sawn off shotgun i love that that says everything about your books though linda that it's jane's first day she gets into a car before she even gets to the office she gets in the car and is it Teflon driving? And off she goes. And then it's like, it's mayhem. And then it doesn't let up. I think I wrote this down. I think day one ends on about page 160. It doesn't stop. It's because there's so much. And also for me, it's fascinating to know so much about ballistic. Mm. Is it, I mean, you know, you've got a ballistic expert. What happens in modern day drama and modern day TV series? You have a very good looking blonde who is about. 28, 29, who's a ballistic expert. Not only is she a ballistic expert, she's also a blood splattering expert. She's also a scientific genius in the laboratory. And you go, wait a second. Then you have a pathologist whose job is in a laboratory opening up a body and saying, lungs full of water, they drowned. No, we now have pathologists with torch in hand searching murder sites. And you go, no, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, there's forensic departments, there's all these different departments. So when you've got, you know, female going, well, I think the bullet came from the left-hand side window, the ricocheted off his skull, hitting the back window, and you go, no, 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 wait a minute. It, it, you, it pulls you out of the book, that's the problem. When there's something that's inauthentic, that's mm. it. You, you step away from the book and you get that horrible voice that starts yeah. to doubt. And if that happens on page 10 or 100, whenever, yeah. that's it. The rest of the book is ruined. And what's great about this is it almost reads like a documentary. It's, fanc- it's fascinating. You're just in it and you're completely immersed. But it's also the tiny thing that, you know, discre- a witness. Witnesses are very unreliable. <laughs> yeah. You ask them to repeat the same thing they've said three times. And, you know, they think, well, I better change a bit of it. Uh, they don't mean to, but the valid witness... Um, to find them is quite hard. Yeah. So when one of the witnesses is like a very old age pensioner that people have said, oh, she's got a bit of dementia, that's very wobbly. Mm. So, but this, in this, when they describe one of the raiders, the armed robbers, wearing a cap. That's something to hold on to. Just what kind of cap? Well, yeah. it's a cap. No, can you describe it? Well, it, it was pulled down. 
So do you think he was hiding his face? Yes. So as you're saying and asking these questions, a man's flat cap is very rarely pulled down mm. because the peak is attached to the head of the cap. Or the up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the... Like peaky blinders. So then you get... Exactly. Peaky blinders are known as Baker Boy hats. Okay. Caps. Oh, with a button. Yeah, yeah. So when you eventually get a witness who said, well, I'll tell you what it was like. It was like it had a button on the top. It was in different... So you're not looking for a guy where... Because an armed robber is unlikely to switch his head with mm-hmm. unless he's wearing a mask. Yes, yes. Over and over again, you get the interest in questioning a witness. And drilling down and keeping on going and asking drilling more them questions. Down, yeah, drilling yeah. them down. And detail, but your books are so rich and they're so full of detail. And what also I love about this is that um, when I read crime books nowadays, modern ones set in present day, it's always murder. It's always murder. I do. And I'm like, and so I saw this, uh, you know, Tom, you've got to read the new Linda LaPlante. Okay, great, lovely. I'll read Linda LaPlante, fantastic. And I'm like, oh, it's just a armed robbery. Um, part of my brain thinks, oh, well, isn't there murder? But it's exciting because yeah. the, there's the risk... It's huge because of when it's happening. Because yeah. as we discussed, it's happening in the eighties yeah. when they just fly into these things. But if you think nowadays, if you're going to set a book in, you know, uh, an armed robbery like this, well, banks, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, down come the shutters. cash. I mean, there's no cash anymore, so uh, down know. come the shutters. So a lot yeah. of cash robberies of poor people being robbed at an ATM machine. Yeah. But I always remember one of the most notorious criminals in the history of English prisons. Is a prisoner called Charlie Bronson, yes. who I think has now changed his name to Charlie something or else. But I think he changed his name to Charlie Silvestrine or, so, or but something. But he's that charming serial killer type, isn't he? Was he a serial killer? No. He, oh. he, I thought he was a serial killer. He was, no, he was originally <laughs> sentenced to five years for attempted robbery. Okay. And has now been the longest serving prisoner. I think he's over 30 because he keeps killing people in prison. Oh, I see. And he and also taking governor's yes. caption. Right. And I also remember his father. Charlie Salvador, he's now called. Sir, Charlie Off the top Salvador. of my head. And um, his father telling me, oh, well, you know, he's stupid. <laughs> so I said, why do you say that? Well, he only got, you know, original five-year sentence. Then he came out and... Uh, he had a balaclava and a shotgun, but he didn't know what time Nat West Bank opened, so he was sitting on the steps. <laughs> and is you that think, true? This is true. <laughs> this is this can't be true. But Charlie is also a great poet, a cartoonist, mm. whose life has been spent entirely behind bars. So he the, had he actually served his sentence just for that one initial yes. crime? He'd have been out long since. Yeah. Then wow. he went back in. <gasps> Got the governor and he's had, oh. I don't know how many very high-ranking prison staff. Lots and lots. For example, it's hard to believe that when I was doing a prison series and writing um, a part of a prisoner holed up in a prison cell, how would you get them out? Mm. And there is an entire unit training prison officers how you get a prisoner keeping somebody captive out of their cell because they've now made cells so difficult <laughs> to get in or out of. Yeah. And, um, so they've got their techniques ready. The techniques. So they said to me they couldn't really give me the techniques. 
because if I put it in the show, then, um, you know, the prisoners would know how to handle. So I said, oh, guess what? Charlie, who had held a governor prisoner in his cell, he's on the phone to me (laughs) in my He goes, "Uh, oh, I can help you there. Would you like my tapes? I said, you have tapes of being in a cell holding <laughs> He said, yeah, I got the tapes. <laughs> so he said, they belong to me because of the lawsuit against me because of keeping a hostage. So it's all hostage negotiation. Hang on, so this is a tape made by Charlie... Bronson, Salvadori. Sp- sure, speaking to you, Linda, on the phone. Yeah. And he said to you, he's got tapes yes. of the hostage situation. Yes. Right, because where are these tapes? Because have the tapes. Can we broadcast them on magic? lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and have you listened to them? Yes. Are they in the public sphere? No. No. Can you give us the best bits? Hello, Charlie. What you have for breakfast? Oh, I had egg. And I had... Uh... No, I had, I think, a scrambled egg this morning. What did you have, Charlie? Oh, I had a egg bacon fry-up. Oh, did you? Did you have a fry-up yesterday? I swear to you, eight hours of that. Just mundane chit-chat. Keeping them low, low, down, down. down. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mind you, that's what we do on magic. That's our, <laughs> that's our presenting style. That's how we do it. Uh, Linda Laplante, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I, I mean, you, you, you're from Liverpool originally. Yeah. Uh, but why London? Why have you been so drawn into London? Because a lot of your writing is based in London. What is it about London? Because that's where it? I came when I was 16. Okay. You know. And so I've lived here since I was 16. And Liverpool, you, you, they always say you can never take the Liverpool out of the game. You never can. No. There's a humour in Liverpool that is nowhere else in mm. the world. As someone who's uh, done stand-up comedy for 15 years, yeah. doing gigs at Liverpool is the scariest place. Because yeah. the audience, funnier it's than like, you. It's like one wonderful story is, you know, saying, does this bus stop at the pier head? Well, I hope so, lover. There's got to be a big splash. <laughs> they're fast. That, their comedy is so fast. This is a bus conductor. How Brilliant. many times has he cracked that? Code? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, love it. I it's, love it. They, it's something in Liverpool. You know, I've done book signings <laughs> so sharp, isn't where it? Um, you can't believe the things that people have said to me in book signings. Mm, like the, mm. In the middle of Liverpool, this woman comes up and I'm signing the new Jane Tennyson. She said, I'm not speaking to you. <laughs> You've gone and killed Lorraine Page, the Cold Shoulder Trilogy. I've not been able to sleep. <laughs> what did you kill her for? I loved her. I'm never buying another book of yours. And she stormed off. That was that. That was the end of that. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure many, many people are going to be buying lots more books of yours. Uh, Linda LaPlante, the fabulous Dirty Dozen is out now as we go back and we join Jane Tennyson early doors. Uh, any more of this early Tennyson still to come? What's in your head now, please? There's Linda? five more books to come. Oh, my goodness. Then she will be Jane Mirren. Yeah. No, not Jane Mirren, but Helen Mirren. So, yeah, yeah, then she becomes... So when do we join Helen, Helen Mirren on the TV series? When do we join her then? In 1990, was it? 1993. 93, okay. And so she's you... already a detective chief inspector and right. still discriminated against. Mm, of course, yeah. 1993, it's yeah. still happening. Still happening. So when we go back to the 80s, do you have any uh, idea in your head about this being turned into a TV series? Is that happening? Is that being talked about? Well, it was talked about and it was done and I walked off it. Oh, I love it. Yes. Good for you. it was dreadful. Okay, all right, fine. Miscast, just dreadful. 
So did they broadcast it or did the whole thing just fall yes, apart? Yes, it, it crawled out right. and then crawled back again. Okay. And When uh, did that happen? Oh, I don't know. A year ago, two right. years ago. Right, right, right. And the reality is it's too stupid because, you know, the people involved, it's very frightening too, you know, that you could have complete nerds in charge of everything mm. uh, and also to have somebody look at you and say you do not own the character of Jane Tennyson. We do. ITV do. And if we wanted to make a TV series without you writing it, we could. And then you've got that little break where they go, <laughs> not that we would, of course. Well, that's what they did, you know. Wow. So is there is there a future there for that past Jane Tennyson? Could it be revisited under different circumstances? I sincerely hope so. To me... It is a farcically ludicrous financial situation that ITV are losing. Mm, it is. It's such a. It's a brilliant because asset. the books are so successful worldwide, and yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I cannot believe it. And I'm having such fun writing up. You know, next one coming up. It's really very exciting to grow a character. Yeah. Because when you first meet her, she's not married. Who did she live with? Um, what relationships? Where mm. where did she go? What happened to her? And bit by bit, I'm able to tell you that. And that's what I love. Yeah, and that passion and enthusiasm, the fun you're having, it bounces off the page. It's just yeah. there from page to page. It's wonderful. Thank I love you. it. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for coming in. My it's pleasure. A, it's a pleasure to meet you. Linda LaPlante, the new novel, The Dirty Dozen, is out now. And that's it for another uh, Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you, Linda. Thanks so much. Hello. Thanks. Thanks.